Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Greatest of All Talk. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. You know, I hate to do this to the Orlando Magic fans because we're always telling them we're talking about you on the next episode. We're talking mm. about you on the next episode. And we promised that we were going to open with the Orlando Magic on today's episode. But the in-season tournament bracket has dropped, and there's a chance the Lakers can face the Celtics in the championship game in Las Vegas. I think we need to do a full breakdown on that possibility. You know, it's <laughs> just like on the we're talking about yeah. Yeah, just a classic rivalry in NBA history. You've got LeBron, you've got Jason Tatum. Is Jalen Brown going to be up to the task? Is Kristaps Porzingis going to be back healthy? What's going on with Anthony Davis? Which AD mm. are you going to get because it's not always the same guy? I think we could probably just save the magic talk for for next week, maybe, or just roll it yeah. over. I mean, they're gonna they're probably just gonna keep winning. I mean, it's not like they've won eight straight games and just put up 139 points on your Washington Wizards last night. Not a lot going on, <laughs> newsworthy down there in Central Florida. I think we could just flip that maybe maybe to the new year. Honestly, I don't know. Well, so what would it mean for Anthony Davis's legacy if the Lakers are able to pull out a win in the inaugural in season tournament? Well, it's a great question. I remember some idiot in the Washington Post wrote that his 2020 bubble playoff run was the best run of any LeBron teammate You mm. know, throughout history. You look at the PER and the win shares. I mean, it was a more impressive performance than peak Dwayne Wade and, and Chris Bosh and Kyrie Irving, even that great run through the 2016 finals. Well, really, you know, two great games by Kyrie, but <laughs> nobody had done it like Anthony Davis, Andrew. And if you put that kind of a run together with the first in-season tournament run, I mean, he's already a first-bout Hall of Famer, but I just think that just takes him to a different level, right? Yeah, exactly. We're starting to talk about him and and Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett. It's in that kind of a conversation, right? Well, and you look at the the Laker legacy. I mean, Anthony Davis, at that point, he's standing shoulder-to-shoulder with Kareem and Shaq and some of the legends out there. And then on the other end, do you have Tatum? Hold on, hold on. Don't don't forget about Austin Reeves. I mean, he could be in the Manu category (laughs) with this as well. Now, yeah, please, I didn't mean to interrupt. So what do you see as the the implications on that Boston side? Yeah, I mean, does Tatum stake his claim alongside Bill Russell and Kuzi and Bird taking home the uh, first ever hyphen trophy out there in Vegas? No, listen, I can't go any further. No, no, no. There's no question that he would finally beat the case, beat the Chargers. You know, these questions about Boston's late game offense, which (laughs) the Bucs fans in particular love to raise because it's like the one little trump card they have in this uh, head-to-head matchup against the Celtics. They would be, you know, nuked forever. You know, these mm. guys would be clean. They would be golden. If you win the in-season tournament, you're never, ever going to have to worry about melting down in the clutch in May and June again. You've got the confidence. You've got that NBA Cup. Lord knows you've got the $500,000 check. I mean, the stakes are massive here. And what a gigantic win for the NBA. What a, a horrible, horrible loss here for the Orlando Magic fans. This is tough. Yeah, exactly. We'll punt the Magic to next season. We'll, I promise, Magic fans, we are going to talk about the Magic um, next November, December, somewhere along the way. We'll get to it. Um, Daniel says... When We've I never moved, laid it on thicker. <laughs> when I moved to Adelaide in, in January 2013 and was suddenly surrounded by basketball crazy people for the first time in my life, I was forced to make a decision, one that would shape my future in a very special way. I was forced to choose which NBA team I would support. 
Now, I grew up sports mad, soccer, rugby, cricket, tennis, you name it, but I never cared for basketball, really, and henceforth knew absolutely nothing about the state of the league. All I had to fall back on was one game on ESPN I happened to remember from a few years back where Dwight Howard and the Orlando Magic beat up the Atlanta Hawks. So obviously, I chose the Magic. Orlando, as we know, by January 2013, had just lost to White and were on our way to a 20-62 and record, bringing us the number two pick and a young Victor Oladipo. That decision, choosing the Magic, has haunted me for years, having very little to feel good about other than a DJ Augustine game winner against the Kawhi Raptors. I remember that game. And some wholesome... From four Nicola years ago, Vucevic. five years ago. I mean, he's digging deep. He's only got one positive memory from the last five years, but continue. Well, last like 10 plus years. Uh, some wholesome Nikola Vucevic all-star selections, another bright spot for Daniel. Uh, that was all up until the trade deadline in 2021. We all know what happened then. Jeff and John manhandled the league, leading us to world champion Franz, future MVP Paolo, and in the half-court heartthrob himself, Jalen Mother Sorry Elizabething uh, Suggs. We are <laughs> the best team in the league right now, securing eight wins on the trot after yesterday and a record of 13-5. and five. So Ben and Andrew, I ask, do you believe in magic now that was one of several verbose emails we've gotten from magic Mm. fans over the last week or so the entire time you and i have hosted the podcast one of the weirdest aspects of hosting this podcast for like the last seven years has been just a lot of rabid magic fans in our inbox on a regular basis despite one of the most forgettable runs in the entire league over that span And now they're good. So what comes to mind when you look at this start in Orlando? I'll let you kick us off here on the long-awaited Magic discussion. Yeah, I mean, are they good or very good? I mean, maybe these rabid Magic fans are going to push back and say, well, we got to prove that we're great, but maybe we're Mm. very good. I I might be ready to go all uh, all that far, Andrew couple things from this email first of all he called a shot you know he hopped in the dm last night and said i'm gonna send you an email that's gonna lead the show and i said bring it on brilliant wow. and look what he did <laughs> i didn't even tell you about it but it was a good enough email and boom right off the top so congratulations to daniel i like your point about just the curiosity of these diehard orlando magic fans because i was watching that wizards game um on wednesday night and granted it's the washington wizards right they lose basically every game mm-hmm. granted uh it's not an in-season tournament game so it's not like they're playing for point differential or stakes it's just a normal regular season game it's a wednesday night so it's not necessarily that premier night the attendance at that amway center was great you know there's a lot of people there they weren't making a lot of noise and there was this play in the second half the game was already decided minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes eh, quarters before this play but Jalen Suggs just comes flying down the court in a chase down situation, trying to get back into the play defensively as Washington's in transition. He just kind of pokes the ball out from behind and the momentum of his like charge back defensively carries him into the front row of the crowd in very like Marcus Smart or Drew Holiday type fashion. And he just takes a seat in one of the courtside seats. And I'm expecting the entire building to give this guy a standing ovation because (laughs) You don't see that level of effort from NBA players at like playoff games 90% of the time, right? This is like a Draymond Green level 
elite hustle type of play. And maybe he got mild applause. I'm not sure. So there's clearly a disconnect to me between like the people who are paying their hard-earned money to go to the Orlando Magic fan, uh, games. They remind me a lot of the Clippers fans, to be honest, and not in a you know flattering way. And then these just absolute nut jobs that we hear from, like Daniel, who apparently are just seeking out other nut jobs on the internet that they can really <laughs> uh, you know dive in headfirst with. What do you think? Well, speaking of nut jobs on the internet, the sequence where Jalen Suggs and Cole Anthony recreated the LeBron James and Dwayne Wade like off the glass lob, and then Suggs is doing the the pose um, as Cole Anthony does the dunk, the alley oop. That's like, you know, it's like fan fiction written by like the sickest Magic fans on the internet. Like, wow, Suggs and Cole Anthony, that's our LeBron and D Wade. And it, right. it actually, they pulled it off. They executed it to perfection. And um, it, it's well, you know a the great key to that snapshot play, right? of what the season has been. What was the key? Uh, Cole Anthony did not wear the Timberlands that he had during the slam dunk contest because <laughs> he was able to elevate high enough and get up and, and catch the lob and finish it. It was actually a pretty nice lob pass uh, by Jalen Suggs. Right. Uh, no, it was a, a good time. We can go a little bit easier, I think, on the Heatles comparisons for these Orlando Magic, but they're a really fun time. One of the greatest things about their diehard fans is that they've been guilt-tripping the heck out of me, Andrew. They're like, you come on this show, all you do is talk about, oh, defense is gone in the NBA, no one plays defense anymore. You know, you sound like this old guy who just can't get with the times. It's like, here's a team right here that plays hard, plays defense every single night. And granted, they did just win 139 to 120-something. So look, they can get some points up too. But they have been doing this with a top three defense all season long. Their best players on defense are better, in my opinion, than their best players on offense, right? Like Suggs, uh, Jonathan Isaac, when he's healthy, and they got other defensive parts as well, are already like all league level defenders that, you know, I'm not going to put Paolo and Franz on the all league level as scorers or playmakers or whatever, mm-hmm. what, what have you. So. They've been doing it the grinding way, but it's not ugly. Like we've seen some defensive-oriented teams in the past where it's like a slog to watch their games, but they force so many turnovers. They do get out in transition like that play. They do make the hustle plays back like the one I was describing. They're about as fun of a watch for a defense-first team, especially in this modern NBA that I could imagine. And to me, the fascinating comparison is the Indiana Pacers, who we talked about recently, because... I was making the case, you know, somebody like Tyrese Halliburton has to be so freaking good with his style because everybody wants to play all offense and no defense, right? And so, like, if you're going to be able to, like, swim with the stream, you have to swim really, 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 really fast. In Orlando, they're kind of taking the opposite approach, and they're going to be a a tricky matchup for anybody they get um, in the playoffs because defense will matter in that level. Now, the the question is, if everybody else ramps up their defensive uh, ability and Orlando can't get its offense over kind of middling, which is looks like it's going to be its uh, ceiling this year, does the the gap of the value of their defensive intensity once we get to the playoffs become diminished because everybody else is playing harder and so there's not they're not so much better than everyone else on the defensive end that that's going to be a winning formula for them? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's an open question, right? We we don't know exactly how far this can go. But they're bankable during this regular season, right? I mean, this is going to be a team that's a a top six in the East team. I'm ready to say that, aren't you? Yeah, I I feel pretty good about that. Um, And a couple other observations while we're here. So you mentioned the, the fans Wednesday night. 
I'm going to absolve the fans of being too checked out to properly appreciate the Suggs hustle. I, I'm blaming that on the Wizards. I think anybody who's sitting uh, can't through do it. two and a half hours of the Wizards, it's like not a real NBA game. It's why, you know, the, yeah. the heat impersonation feels natural in that setting because it's basically like a globetrotter situation when you're playing the Wizards on the other side. Although, hey, man, the, the Magic did snap the one-game winning streak that the Wizards brought into that one after winning the tank off with the yeah. Pistons on Monday they were night. On the, they were on the trot for one game, as uh, he would say. <laughs> know, exactly. uh, our, our Australian listener, Daniel. No, I can't, I can't go that far. Obviously, the Wizards don't help, but when was the last time you were like, the Amway Center's going crazy for the Orlando Magic? Like, I just think it's a Florida basketball deal. You know, the Miami mm-hmm. Heat fans aren't that crazy. I think the Orlando fans... You know, that that area of the country, they're probably a little bit older demographic. You know, they always play the games at seven o'clock, feels like, so people can kind of get to bed a little bit earlier. Um, So maybe this will be the team that kind of inspires the more raucous atmosphere, but they just kind of feel Disney-fied to me, you know? And maybe it's because they got the jersey patch that says Disney. It feels like they should be handing out rally monkeys and, you know, Mm. all the stuff like the Anaheim Angels do and... I don't want to turn this into like, let's bash the Orlando Magic fans. I just think they have some learning to do. Anybody who's still there after the last 10 years is probably trying to guard their emotions a little bit and a little bit, you know, worried about how this goes south. But I think they should feel free to get on their feet and go nuts, man. This team deserves it. Yeah. And honestly, um, I don't want to go too far on the generic praise here, but I will just say straight up, this is the biggest surprise of the season for me. Coming into the year... I would not have been shocked that the Pacers get a little frisky. Tyrese Halliburton looks like an all-NBA guy. I would not have been shocked that the Thunder take a step forward, maybe two steps forward, and are in like the Western Conference Finals conversation. Same with the the Wolves. I I wasn't shocked that the Rockets are half-decent and competitive on most nights. The Magic, I expected them to be pretty good, like low 40s good um and it, look at this as sort of like a transitional season and then maybe they'd be actually good in a year or two but these guys are actually good now and one aspect of the story that i really really enjoy is jalen suggs man because the thing that was painful about suggs is you could watch from literally the first month of his career and you could see that he played incredibly hard. He was a winner. Like, you could even see this at Summer League when he showed up. He was great defensively. But early on, there were already real questions about what exactly he was going to be and what the ceiling would look like for him. Right. And so, so 36 did, 21 shooting splits in his rookie year weren't good enough for you? It, well, yeah. And, and you could see, like, all right, this is a guy who's about basically all the right things, seems like such a winner. And deep down, if you had asked me the past two years, I would not have predicted very much success for Suggs in the NBA. And you see him now with a team that's actually competing on every single night. And his value to a team that's winning is like double what it was to the Magic the last two years. And he's also gotten better. He's a more reliable shooter. He's not playing on the ball all the time, which I actually think is a healthy shift for him. And he sort of looks like a potential heir to Drew Holiday, where he just does a bunch of helpful things for a good team. And he's in a situation where he doesn't have to be 
a top five pick type score because they've got Franz Wagner and Paolo Bancaro. I should note that after I called Paolo out early in the season, um, Kevin, another one of our magic diehards, points out that he has been shooting uh, 48% from the field, 56% from three over the last couple of weeks. I'm not sure if those numbers are accurate as as of this episode, but well, and a couple is, game winners. Yeah, we were he, crushing him in late game situations. I think he had two game winners since then too. He's putting it together, and Franz Wagner quietly a little shaky early on, but over the last four games, he's got 26 points per game, six rebounds, uh, four assists, 64% from the field, 42% from three. So the nucleus is much better than it looked even a month ago because I'm actually now open to the possibility, all right, maybe Paolo does have like that superstar potential and Franz is is getting his feet underneath him. But most importantly, I think Suggs is the guy who just is like shot out of a cannon anytime you turn on a magic game. And uh, altogether, it's turned into like a really enjoyable reliable watch down there in Orlando. So maybe they can all work together to shake the Orlando community out of its slumber and get Amway rocking. Cause um, I'm certainly enjoying it so far. You know, embrace this guy. Does he have to like dye his hair blue, like a Marcus smart going green for the Celtics Mm. fans to really love him? Like what's he got to do? Let's not make him resort to gimmicks. You know, unfortunately there's not a ton of hair left. Um, Look, Suggs has been awesome the first couple of years, he also had injury issues. I'm not sure yeah. that you mentioned that. With his play style, I think that has to be a concern as well because he is just going so hard every single night that you worry is something you know is he just going to get banged up along the way. So that's one way that this thing could get derailed. I don't want to you know bring the party down, but it, I think it's something worth no, mentioning. No, I definitely meant to mention that. That was a, it, he would put together like a good week or two and then get hurt, and that was part of the problem the first couple of years. So yeah, it's definitely I, I have my guard up on that front. I think if you're a Blazers fan and you're looking at Scoot Henderson and you want to make the case, please give this guy two years and see what he actually becomes. I think that how bad Suggs was his rookie year. I mean, you know, the generic praise about his energy level and his defensive impact, yes, but he wasn't nearly this good defensively even two years ago. And offensively, he was an absolute train wreck. And coming into this season, I was sort of like trying not to give up on Suggs because Mm -hmm. I really liked him as a college prospect. But I was in the back of my mind being like, well, this is going to be the last year for him. And if it doesn't really hit, then I'm just going to have to, you know, delete all that stuff off the internet. You know, there was some really embarrassing, like next Chris Paul comparisons that I had made that were definitely going to have to get scrubbed because I didn't (laughs) want, uh, I didn't want the blowback to come, you know, if he's still shooting like 37% or whatever. So um, it's been awesome to see for him. Look, Paolo has also been a little bit more flexible of a player than I expected. He's passing the ball more. He's not only settling for the worst possible shots uh, like I was worried that he would. Um, He's not ball pounding as much as I expected. He's been more part of the team concept. That's great. You know, it's like the less that he can fall into the next Carmelo stereotype, the better. The more he can kind of transcend out of that, the more valuable he's going to be in this modern NBA where there's just different requirements of players like that. I mean, there's a good chance in the playoffs down the road, he's going to have to play five, right? Uh, In small ball lineups, close as a five. That's going to require a lot of extra effort. He showed he was willing to do some of that for USA Basketball, which was really cool. But I think he's also going to have to do that um, with the Magic. And we're talking like two, three years down the road, right? And the fact that he's not just coming in and saying, I'm a bucket getter, I'm going to play my way, deal with it, which is what Carmelo did his entire career. 
is a very, very promising sign for me. It just seems like he is more interested in the team concept than I was worried he was you know, when he first came into the league. So that's been awesome as well. There are some really cool stories with this Magic group, though. And just quickly, like start with Jamal Mosley. The hardest thing in the NBA right now is to get people to play good defense, especially Mm -hmm. young players, right? You look at the other teams that are the same age as the Magic, they're just absolutely train wrecks defensively, right? Like, can you ever imagine the Washington Wizards or the Detroit Pistons or even the Utah Jazz without Kessler or some of these other young teams, the Portland Trailblazers, uh, you know, when they don't have their veteran guys, if they're not healthy, like... It's just so easy to run up points on a lot of these teams, right? And we could we could name has, the entire league: the Bulls, the Hornets, yeah. the Hawks. Yeah. I mean, like nobody's <laughs> playing defense except for like four teams. Yeah, that was like the worst best man speech. You're like, wrap it up, okay? We got it. You know, a beer for two hours if you start killing all these teams, right? So there's something very, very special about the culture that he's been able to create. You know, he actually got some, uh, you know, good thumbs up and kudos coming out of the USA Basketball Camp because he was working with the select team. Um, you know, people thought he did a nice job there just in mm-hmm. Las Vegas. There was some, you know, whispers about that, you know, that, that can be generic praise. So, you, you know, you don't take that too seriously, but look at the results. you got a team this young with this many guys who've been in and out of the lineup because of injuries, uh, playing at a top three level defensively right up there with, you know, Rudy Gobert's Timberwolves and the Celtics that have been playing high level defense for years and years. That's impressive stuff. I know some of the Magic fans are not as thrilled with his offensive X and O's. And they kind of blame him for some of the shortcomings on offense. And I would just encourage all of them, come up for air. Like, it is so hard to have a good defensive culture um, when you're molding players who are 21, 22, 23, that whatever he's doing right from a culture standpoint vastly outweighs whatever's going wrong that or you think is going wrong on the X's and O's side. Yeah. Um, now, the other fun story with these guys is their front office because they got – you know, John Hammond and Jeff Weltman, these kind of like two former Bucks guys and kind of Raptors ties and all this. It's so interesting to me that John Hammond was Jeff Weltman's boss in Milwaukee, and then it flipped in Orlando. Like Jeff Weltman gets uh, to run it, and John Hammond okay, yeah. is the advisor. It'd be like if you let me host the show. Would you ever have <laughs> the ability to take a step back, to release the reins and say, okay, go nuts. You get to host the show, not just for one episode, right? This yeah. is for like the next two or three years, Basically, uh, the chapter like you're of your career. you're planning the episodes. That's what would be difficult for me. I'm happy to pass you the mic and make you the host, but giving right. you the reins to, to plan the content for each show um, for an entire season would be really, yeah, really years. difficult. Yeah, No, a I chapter mean, of your career. I mean, it'd be crazy, right? And so I, I just think it speaks to their selflessness. Obviously, their bond as executives because they've worked together for a, a number of years. And I do think John, apparently he's getting older, so he's like taking a step back or he's like an advisor now. But for these last couple of years, as they were drafting these guys and building this team, like he was sort of the deputy and Jeff Weltman got to be his former boss's boss. You don't see that a lot in the NBA. It's pretty cool. And I think that, you know, they for a long time were stereotyped as just being obsessed with length, right? It's like if Mo Bamba's on the board, you know they're drafting Mo Bamba. Like, you know, if Bull Bull is on the board, these guys are going to get Bull Bull, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you look at this group and say it's like fully vindicated their vision, but I think that they've cared more about defensive principles and, um, you know, impact on that end more than the average group. The easy thing to do 
is to, you know, draft a high scoring guard like a Jalen Green and just trot him out there, hope he gets 25 points and sell a lot of tickets. It's a lot trickier to draft some of the guys that they've taken who aren't necessarily going to be fan friendly, aren't necessarily going to be able to stay on the court when everybody else is, you know, playing pace and space and hope that some of those guys would hit. Now, yeah. granted, a lot of their guys didn't hit. And, you know, the key to all of this is Paolo, who is that lead scorer who they just were missing for years and years and years. So I, to me, I guess the story is they'd had a pretty clear philosophical vision for what they were looking for. And when they had the opportunity to kind of maybe go a different direction with it and to draft on talent, they weren't so stuck to their philosophy that they took Jabari Smith Jr., who would have fit in exactly with mm-hmm. you know how they had been drafting for years before and got a guy in Palo who probably has more up, upside and is probably contributing more to their winning even right now than um, you know a player like Jabari Smith would. So... Now, of course, that decision could be uh, still second-guessed depending on how Chet's career turns out. Like, I'd rather have Chet than Paolo, but the Magic fans are not willing to cede that debate yet, Andrew. And I guess I was going to ask you, what is the percentage chance that Paolo has a better career than Chet, right? If we're mm. saying take it all into account, like we're this is, you know, we're inducting them both into the Hall of Fame. They're going in together, that <laughs> vaunted rookie class, right? Who is the headliner, Paolo or Chet? Who has the better career? What, what would you put the percentage at? Because I'm leaning Chet, and I would say probably 70% Chet, 30% Paolo. What do you yeah. think? I, I would agree with those percentages in a vacuum. Like if I am choosing which player to take for the next 10 years, which player to start from scratch with, I would choose Chet and feel pretty good about that being the right choice long term. Um, but I also think it's a closer question than it looked about a month ago when Paolo wasn't shooting the basketball well, Chet was, and it just looked a little bit too clunky for Paolo for my liking, um, but he's now settled into more of a comfort zone. And I think the operative question for Orlando is which player addressed more of what they needed uh, a couple years ago. And that is really a close question because they needed somebody who could be an offensive engine and just eat possessions in the half court, be a bucket as we uh, deemed him after his first summer league, not necessarily him, but definitely a bucket. And I I think Paolo, particularly given where the magic had been for literally a decade with all the same weaknesses and all the same strengths that unfortunately weren't enough to like make them actually competitive. um, I understand why they went with Paolo. And I think there's a chance that it could end up working just fine for them in the long run. Uh, And both those guys could be all NBA guys through like the prime of their career. Chet does look great though, which is part of why this is difficult. Uh, but it's amazing life. but i think you hit it on the head i actually don't think it was that close from a need perspective i think palo was the clearer short-term need right but what threw everybody off with that draft is first of all they were like a lot of smoke and mirrors about what are they going to do everybody was like waiting to the last minute to see who they picked right mm-hmm. but the weltman type of player would have been either Jabari or Chet. They always wanted length, defensive, you know, intangibles, intensity. That's what they had gone for for years and years and years. And so they actually went for need over their stereotype. And I give them credit for doing it because it's worked out pretty well so far. 
And Paolo seems like he has a very high floor as a player, too, don't yeah. you think? Like, I mean, coming in, averaging 20 as a rookie, like that establishes you at a pretty good level. And then it's obviously all upside from here. And I think he's in the right kind of environment where they're going to be able to get the most out of him defensively, too. Sometimes guys like that come in, and they say, screw it, I'm going to let my teammates be the defensive players. And he doesn't seem like he has that attitude, and, and I love that. So, um you know, I, there's a lot going on with the Orlando Magic. I think my last point to tie everything off, though, for my side is going back to the emailer and his just scant memories of these high points of the Magic history. And so I was like going through my own brain and I was thinking back like, well, I did go to the Orlando All-Star Weekend and like almost got hit by a car. Yep, I remember that. I was that. there too, sure. Uh, yeah, uh, I was trying to, like, what are the other high points here? And it came back to me that the single most important game that the Orlando Magic have played during my tenure covering them, even though they made the playoffs with Dwight and all that, was the bubble game that they didn't play. It was like sneaking in and trying to get a look into their locker room when Vucevic and all those guys ah, are yeah. waiting to find out that you know the Milwaukee Bucks didn't take the court and they're going to have this big protest. Their most important game was a scratch. That's all you need to know about the Orlando Magic for the last 10 years. It's crazy. It's not hyperbole. It's it's not out of pocket. None of it is on a diss. It's true. That was the most important game uh, of their entire last decade. They will always be the team that went out for warm-ups and then went back into the locker room and eventually just took off on the bus because there was no game that day. So I don't, I don't think you can summarize what people like Daniel have been through better than that. And uh, I'm excited for the diehards, and I hope some of these casuals, you know, start turning in diehards with this group because this is the kind of team you can love, right? I mean, yeah. I think you could really wrap your mind around this group if you're a fan, and uh, I hope that happens. You know, if you had put a gun to my head and said, were the Orlando Magic a playoff team and part of the bubble experience a couple years ago, I'm not sure I would have answered correctly, let alone remember that they <laughs> were the team on the other side of that Bucks uh, walkout. I, yeah, look, I, I agree with the way you explained it there. I don't know exactly how good the Magic can be, even in this year's East. Like, I think we said, all right, they're a top six team, clearly. But the top six, I mean, that's going to be competitive. Like, the Sixers, Bucks, and Celtics are all really solid. The Heat are better than I expected. The Cavs are going to figure it out and going to be a top six team. So it's like the Knicks uh, and Pacers and... Yeah, I mean, I think the Magic could probably be that sixth team, but it's not a foregone conclusion would be my final note here. And what the ceiling is is going to be dependent on what Paolo can do and what Franz can do at the top of the roster. But just subjectively, when I compare this team to some of the other teams that are like clearly contenders, I enjoy watching the Magic more. Like, it's a more balanced roster than the Bucks, who just sort of play like crap for 45 minutes and then figure it out at the end. And the Celtics, who take a million threes every game. And the Sixers, you're getting a lot of Embiid. And Maxi has been fun this season. But just on a night-to-night basis, like, you, you get guys like Cole Anthony going off for 30 one night or Mo Wagner or you get some Jonathan Isaac thrown into the mix and and I just have enjoyed the variety coming from this team um while noting that there are questions about how far it could actually go how great they can actually be uh but 
it's just um it's been fun to watch it all come together down there gary harris has been in the mix as well so um no it's the island of misfits toys i mean they got goga they got mo wagner who's had some big moments here recently which is yeah, crazy that you know don't sleep the on Celtics mo. the other week absolutely wendell carter jr has been injured i think for their ceiling, not only this season and next season, I think the move is to grab a point guard with a midseason trade at the deadline. I think that they have to figure out, sort of like Minnesota did, what's our plan going forward next year? We need to get our version of the Mike Conley trade. I just don't think Fultz is going to be the long-term solution there. I think his contract is coming up. I think you have the ability to trade that contract and some draft picks, whatever it might be and find the guy who's going to be uh, orchestrating this group for the next two or three years. Do it at this deadline so that you don't get yourself stuck next summer and maybe the market's in a different spot. Be proactive about it. That whole strategy worked out really well for Minnesota. I'm not saying trade for a 36-year-old point guard. I'm Mm. just saying find who your your lead guard is going to be and be willing to invest in it. It's not going to rock the boat too much. Your other core pieces are already in place. You need a better playmaker in the backcourt to, comp- to to go along with Suggs. You need to find Suggs' long-term partner. I don't think they have him right now, and uh, I hope that they can grab him by in February. And there's yeah. not amazing names available, uh, but they could do better than that full spot right now. And he's been injured, so it's not trying to pick on him. This is more about like the next two, three, four years. How do you get this thing to really lift off? And um, I think they should be buyers in February. Again, this goes back to the stereotype of the front office. The stereotype of the front office is they'll sit on their hands, not shake the boat. And I just worry that that decision could come back to bite them down the road. Time will tell. Maybe it'll be Anthony Black. Don't think it's going to be Jet Howard. Uh, I kind of wish they had gone with Jordan Hawkins with that Jet Howard pick uh, toward the end of the lottery. In any event, final question for you, Ben. If the Celtics do, in fact, beat the Lakers in the finals of the in-season tournament, do you think that makes Joe Missoula, do you think that puts him higher than Doc Rivers on the all-time power rankings for Celtics head coaches? What does that do for Missoula's legacy? Well, look, it's tough. I mean, he's going to have to get some sort of a prop, you know, kind of like Red Arbach cigar, if he's mm. going to be able to get up on that, you know, on the real pedestal. I mean, that's a, a tough group to to crack. There's no question about it. I did think that he handled the whole point differential situation with amazing like Max Verstappen level zero Fs. Did you see that play out with Chicago where they have to win by like 20 plus points to knock out the the magic actually from the uh, the play in tournament? They're killing the Bulls. And then he starts to hack a shack with Andre Drummond to extend his lead even further solely to run up the score on the point differential side. It was so ruthless that even his own players complained about it after the game, including (laughs) Jalen Brown. Billy Donovan looked disgusted. He's like, what the heck are you doing? Comes over and asks him, you know, obviously Boston's playing all of its starters in the fourth quarter of this blowout to bring the victory home. It was just ruthless from Joe Missoula. And we had a number of people email in to say, like, this is how you should play every single game. There shouldn't be this whole sportsmanship deal of going easy on your opponent. You got to play to the whistle. That's the only way you can really learn the essence of competition. I don't feel that way personally, but it was nice to see Joe Missoula stand up for all those voices in the crowd and say, we're going to be as cutthroat about this as possible. And if he's holding up that NBA Cup trophy and all of his players have $500,000 checks, we're going to look back and say, 
Good thing Joe didn't go easy on Andre Drummond. Good thing he like pulled every uh, trick out of the book. Um, I don't know if it's going to change his reputation. He's probably not going to leapfrog Doc, but he deserves credit. There's yeah. no doubt. Burnish the legend up there in Beantown. Uh, Charlie says, in Australian rugby league, we don't believe in respect to your opponent. The winning team tries their best to pile on the points and no mercy is shown. It's just too bad if you stink. You won't get any winning team going soft on you so you can feel better about yourself afterwards. You will get pounded. Watching losing teams get smashed is a joy here. Bring on the tournament rules with point differential and make them uh, applicable for every game of the regular season, I say. And everyone should have to play hard until the final sound of the buzzer. So um, I appreciate the sentiment from Charlie. I can't necessarily endorse I how can't get there. aggro he's being about it all. Um, I don't want to go full rugby as we uh, approach the regular season. And I don't want to incorporate this into the regular season more generally. But as far as the reaction from the Bulls earlier this week, um, I think I'd like to refine my take from the previous show I actually think most of the league does understand the point differential considerations as we get further along in this in-season tournament hyphen process. But what's remarkable is that ego is such a central part of how the NBA operates that even as they understand why a team is pouring on the points and competing until the final buzzer, players and teams are still going to get pissed off. And that's part of what makes this fun. And so it's just a fun little quirk Wait, that ego can or sensitivity. With. Well, ego sensitivity. Yeah. I mean, you could potato, potato situation there, <laughs> okay. but, uh, okay. but I, well, I really, yeah, I, I couldn't tell if they were, their ego was like, you know, this is, um, you're, you're disrespecting me somehow. You know, you're trying to like shove my face in it. Or if they're just like, stop, you know, stop running up the score. Like, what's the what's the sentiment? Because like Billy Donovan like went over there and it kind of he kind of had the vibe of someone who's like panhandling for money. It's like, hey, can you please stop? Can you? Yeah. Hey, brother, can you spare a dollar? <laughs> like that's what it kind of felt like, you know? Well, and and I think his issue was he didn't want to show up Drummond, and that's fair. But honestly. If you don't want Drummond to get That's embarrassed in that no, in that spot, you, well, then you take him off yeah. the court. Like you, you have the power to assist in that situation. It's not incumbent on Joe Missoula to not foul Andre Drummond. And Missoula was contrite right. afterwards and went and talked it out with Billy Donovan. He tried to talk it out with Andre Drummond. I don't know whether he actually connected with Drummond after that game. Um, no, who cares? But, Come on, this guy's been missing free throws for a decade. He can yeah, take it. It is what it is. You know what I mean? And so I, I think everybody could just sort of grow up and buck up here uh, I don't want to go full Charlie and Australian Rugby League but it's not the end of the world and you know Jalen was complaining after the game Tatum was complaining a couple days before that game about the point differential situation but it's fun and it's okay to introduce you know fun little quirks uh, that make these games more entertaining for fans and that's what it's ultimately about at the end of the day well, I've always said it. You're a huge in-season tournament proponent. I'm so mm. glad to hear you singing its praises and all the interesting quirks. It, it did work. I mean, you look at the press release they put out today, you know, social media engagement up, TV viewership up. I mean, all these different metrics they're saying, 
the November games got a lot more attention than last November's games. Now, that was a very low bar. If you remember back to the start of last season, we were just outraged by the number of players who weren't playing and the lack of intensity, and it was just like a really dark time. So I do think, on balance, the... um, the group stage worked better than I expected. I didn't think it was going to be a huge deal. I thought the intensity would pick up when we got to the knockout round, but instead it really picked up in the games right before the knockout round yep. because the stakes were clear at that point, right? It's like if you have to win by X points or you're out, and the players did seem, and the coaches did seem to kind of chase those marks. The most interesting one of those to me was the Warriors versus the Kings. I don't know if you watched that game because. It was chaos. I mean, it was intense. It was going back and forth. The Warriors had this huge lead, and I think they had to win by like 12 points if they were going to advance. So it seemed like they were chasing the point differential. Draymond loses his cool. All of a sudden, boom, here goes the lead. They're back the other direction. The last second play, it comes down. Malik Monk hits this crazy little game winner, and Steph gets one final crack at it. He jacks up this three-pointer. Had he made the three-pointer, the Warriors would have won the game in incredibly dramatic fashion, but they still would have been eliminated from the in-season tournament because they didn't win by enough points, right? right? So I was wondering in that situation, if you're the sideline reporter and Steph makes that shot, do you interview Steph about winning the game? <laughs> Good or question. do you say, I want to go interview De'Aaron Fox or Malik Monk or whoever about advancing to the in-season tournament, right? Like, who's the real winner in that scenario because of these different incentives they've created it just didn't happen because Steph missed a shot. Now, obviously, Steph's such a big star. I'm sure they would have interviewed Steph. But does the second question to Steph have to be, well, how does it feel to miss out on the tournament, right? Like, don't you have to at least address that in that spot? That would be kind of weird. What a strange mixed feeling it could have been. But it wasn't. You know, obviously, the Kings That's just celebrated. They were happy. Question. Yeah, I mean, so if you're the sideline reporter, I don't know who was out there, maybe like Chris Haynes or something. Do you pull, like after a college football game, you know how they pull a player from the offense and a player from the defense? Of maybe course. Maybe you, you pull over... De'Aaron Fox alongside Steph Curry and interview oh, you Steph can't do that, about can the you? game winner and then talk to De'Aaron Fox about making it to the knockout round. Um, that is a fascinating hypothetical. Uh, it was a great game, though. Oh, my God. Draymond, I mean, first of all, I is am willing rap? to put up some money to convince Clay to retire. I think if enough Whoa. people who care about the Warriors pitch in, we can cobble together like a retirement fund so it'll be like a max deal, but you'll just convince Clay to go out with a little bit of dignity. He could get his $30, $40 million. If, again, would you just pool resources here? Uh, I can't watch him play basketball looking like this anymore. And in the the press conference earlier this week, he looked so haggard as he was lecturing the reporters who were asking about Kerr's rotation. And it's just like a bad look all around. And then Draymond coming off the suspension... didn't he look like he just hasn't been sleeping very well because he's shooting 40% from the field and just he can't, you know, he's not moving well defensively. It just looks like he's deep in a mental rut, don't you yeah. think? Yeah. And I really care for him. He's a proud, we competitive know he dude. He's another yeah. guy who's about all the right things. So this has to be like incredibly difficult for him to reckon with. But it's also really hard to watch uh, a lot of these Warriors games where he's just a clear, weak link. And then Draymond comes back, apologizes, just as we predicted, is super sort of dramatic about it, and then comes back. Well, 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 well. He didn't apologize to Gobert. 
No, no, he did. It, it wasn't, I guess, a full throated apology, but it was like, I let my team down. I need to be better. Blah blah blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then in that second half is he did it again <laughs> yeah like i just i can't believe it like some of the stuff he was pulling with the refs it killed the warriors momentum and they had control of the game i don't know whether they definitely would have won by 12 but they were like firmly in control until draymond started acting out and then the kings were able to put together some momentum they got lucky at the very end to get that win uh malik monk hit some big shots and there was a bad steph turnover as well but Altogether, a great game, and altogether, another instance where I come away just like really concerned about everyone outside of Steph associated with the Golden State Warriors. But the Kings were fun in that one, and uh, Kings Warriors as a rivalry continues to be an absolute A plus. So I hope they remain grouped together in these hyphen group stages for years to come. Yeah, I have bad news on that because we got another question about someone who was hoping that the groups would carry over for rivalry purposes. Mm. It's a random draw every year. You know, at least that's uh. how it was this time. So you're not going to get particular rivalries unless the, you know, the coin flip gods are on your side. So, so unfortunately, let me ask you, as as an NBA journalist, um, do you even know like who's in each group? Like as I'm watching these games, it's hard for me to keep track of who the other teams are in group A, group B, or group C. And I wonder whether that's true for all fans or that's just a me problem. I think that's one way I would try to improve it going forward. It just make it easier for, for observers to follow all this. I don't, I don't know though whether that's unique to me. My experience was that fans of their team knew the other teams in their group and then probably didn't care about any of the other groups until it came down to who was going to win the wild card, right? Like if your team wasn't going to win your group, then fans of any specific team were going to compare their record and their point differential to the other teams that were kind of in the mix Mm -hmm. to potentially claim a spot. So like for the Lakers, I did know who was in the Lakers group because I went to some of their in-season tournament games and because uh, they were winning. So it was like obvious that they were going to win the group. So you're kind of comparing their record to others. Um, and I, you know, I heard from a number of fans, you know, like or Magic fans were upset that the Celtics had the big blowout victory. Um, you know, I, and I heard from other fan bases as well saying, OK, yeah, we're here's where we stand. But I don't think anyone memorized all 30 groups, and yeah. nor need, do you need to. I, I don't think that's typically <laughs> how it would go. Right. I mean. In college football, do I memorize the standings of the SEC West and SEC East to know, like, you know, obviously it's just going to be Bama and Georgia like it is every year, right? So you just wait for one of them to win, and then you know who you face. I think that's kind of how most people took it, and I think that's fine because that's sort of how it is in the World Cup too. Like, if your national team's in the World Cup, you're not, you know, and they're in Group A, you're not going to memorize Group F for no reason. Like, you're just going to wait and see who you face. So um it did get incredibly convoluted on the last night when they were flashing all the different scores across the screen on TNT. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, here's nine scores and they're not explaining what the impact that of those was the scores best are. Part. I, I took a screenshot. And I was like, all right, so they're throwing all these scores up here. No one is saying a word about what's relevant and why. So it's just sort of like superimposed on the screen and fans, I guess if they're really curious, can Google and try to figure it out. I I don't have any real complaint about it, but it was just sort of a funny quirk of the experience. No, it didn't work at all. But what did work, though, was during the Warriors-Kings game where they essentially put the line, the point differential line that the Warriors needed to clear um, and it made it very obvious Sacramento gets to advance if this happens 
Golden State gets to advance if this happens. But you couldn't have those just simple things until literally the last game of the tournament because all the other results had been uh, resolved. Otherwise, everything else was just too dependent on the other results, right? Like if New Orleans does this and Houston does this, then you know it impacts these other teams. So I think it's just always going to be chaos if they keep the same format until the very end. And I don't think people are really going to do the standings watching super carefully until it determines who are these last eight teams to kind of sneak in. But you look at the bracket and um, we had talked about how the NBA's dream scenario was to get kind of prestige stars, prestige teams in this bracket to go to Vegas to get people to care, right? Well, they're guaranteed either the Lakers or the Suns going to Vegas, right? If Boston can take care of Indiana, they're going to Vegas. Milwaukee has a shot at Vegas. Now, Golden State is out. Um, you know, you've got the underdog angle with the Sacramento versus New Orleans matchup. Can they kind of surprise everybody, be the young team to sneak in? Like if it winds up being, say, Lakers, Kings, Celtics, Bucks, that's pretty close to the best case scenario for the NBA, right? It could go a completely different direction. It could be Knicks, Pacers, Pelicans, Suns, and then mm-hmm. we're saying a different thing. But like this has set up to this point pretty closely if you're if you're purely looking at this as an economic exercise of how much money and, and television interest can we generate the NBA couldn't have asked for much better matchups with the only exception of Steph Curry not being in it is yeah. what I'm saying yeah I, I and I am really excited to watch the knockout games Monday and Tuesday next week and once they get to Vegas I'll be incredibly jealous of you that semifinal night where it's back-to-back games and just sort of wall-to-wall madness in one arena that's going to be phenomenal. Um, and so I think there's a lot to feel good about if you're the NBA here. There are some people who already want me to come out and do like the walk of shame and give a big mea culpa oh. over the hyphen. You know, I'm not going to do that. I think the past two weeks have been a lot of fun. <laughs> Here's and Draymond. I can only be me. I can, I can only, only be, be me. me. Yeah, exactly. Look, so for me... A lot of this just underscores why the NBA could be so frustrating under Adam Silver because the core product is good and compelling and you can get creative and promote the game in different ways and have it be pretty exciting for everybody. So I look at this tournament and think, man, if the players and teams we have now are exciting enough to make even the laziest, most confusing format work as well as it has over the last couple of weeks... Imagine what this might look like if you did it more coherently and added some competitive stakes that everybody was going to be excited about. Let the buzz build on Twitter and then let Twitter sort of build buzz beyond Twitter. Like right now, it's like the hardcore NBA audience is like having a lot of fun with this. But I I actually think you could build it even more. Um, And I don't know that many people in my regular life actually care about the in-season tournament. Yeah. Well, that was the thing, right? They're like touting. We have like double the ratings and it's like 1.4 million. I'm looking at Michigan. Michigan, Ohio State gets 19 million, right? It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Double the ratings. Great. You know, we're still working with scraps here, but it's the early season. Is there any argument or counter argument to what you're saying of this idea when you have a new thing, it's better to maybe unveil it gradually to not make a big mistake. And so here, let's kind of get everybody used to how this tournament thing could work. Let's not put too much stakes on it because if it turns into be a disaster, then everyone's going to say you're ruining the integrity of the game. And then also, you know, are they being, you know, crazy like a fox and saying, 
let's make it so it's not perfect so that everyone will talk about ways to improve it just to mm. in- increase the engagement. Like maybe they want you coming up with all these <laughs> recommendations for how they can make it better because that gets people talking about the idea and invested in it. Is there any, is there any defense to this idea of like, let's just take one step carefully at a time as you're yes. unveiling this, not making it too big. The only problem I have with that is the name still sucks. Like you never <laughs> should have had the name the in hyphen season tournament is horrible. It's so bad. And so that's the one, the one part that they should have been able to get right from the jump. Um, but other than that, that would be, I think the NBA's counter to what you're saying. And you're, it sounds like you're conceding that that could be better than having overstepped. Yeah. I, I building it piece by piece is a reasonable way to approach it. And if that's the way they do it and they improve it and tweak it a little bit each year, uh, that makes sense to me. Uh, the idea as a business strategy of intentionally reduce, uh, I- introducing like a <laughs> mediocre product so that people argue about it. people would have been arguing about whether this is the right way to do it, ways to improve it. That conversation happens regardless. So I don't think that they're crazy like a fox. I think they may be lazy like a sloth in this case. Oh, um, but, oh look uh, at you, little wordplay. Yeah. Wait, so uh, it, let me ask you this then. Let's flip it. If they come back next year and it's the exact same thing. What's your feeling? Well, so that's the thing. The reality is somebody hit me up earlier this week. Rohan from Sports Illustrated hit me up and was like demanding I apologize for my previous Mm. in-season tournament skepticism. And I said, look, honest to God, we're not going to be able to judge this until three or four years down the line. And I know that's a cop out. I know it feels unfair if you're feeling like, look, this tournament is awesome and you need to apologize. And I'm saying, look, uh, talk to me in 2027. But I think in general, what we've seen through the silver era is the novelty of some of the tweaks that are introduced is interesting enough to make it work short term. Like a lot of the stuff they've done with the all-star game, the first edition of the play in round was phenomenal. And since then there aren't many playing games that I remember that are like particularly uh, dramatic or sort of life altering. Um, well, what about that time Charlotte lost by 40 or that other time <laughs> that Charlotte lost by 40? <laughs> exactly. So I think some of this starts to feel a little perfunctory after a year or two. And that's where there is still time for the league to add structural benefits in the form of like competitive advantages for whoever wins the tournament, tweak the group stages a little bit, don't play 30 to 40% of the games on bright red courts that make it harder to actually watch the games. Um, and I, I, I think that they can continue to tinker with it and this can work and have legs. Uh, so I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But in the meantime, look, the key has been teams playing hard. And I don't know exactly how correlated that is to the in-season tournament, but there's been a lot of competitive basketball the last three weeks, yeah. and it's been a lot of fun. And Tuesday night was great, and I'm psyched for the knockout round on Monday and Tuesday. I mean, will we get a hangover then, you know, after the tournament is over, where people start to, like, let their foot off the gas? I guess we'll have to see. But this November was much, much better than last November. And if you want to credit the player participation policy or the in-season tournament, some combination of the both. It's a contract year on the television stuff, so everybody's, you know, putting their best foot forward. Whatever it might be, this November was way better than last November, and we got to give them their credit on that. Yeah. Last question on this, though. You you are the head of ESPN, or you're the head of TNT, or you're the head of Amazon, or whoever. 
when you look back at the last month in terms of the ratings on the in-season tournament games and you kind of project forward to how much excitement there could be around this Vegas week, are you convinced that this is a sustainable, uh, attractive media property that the NBA has created that should boost the value of that next media rights deal? Or are you going into those boardroom negotiations and saying, hey, it's a first-time gimmick. Yeah, people are going to watch because you put crazy courts and you know mm-hmm. they didn't know exactly what the deal was. How are you handling this if you're a media partner? Are you on board saying, yeah, we're going to have Stephen A. Smith and Charles Barkley on the same commentary <laughs> set in Vegas? It's going to be incredible. Like, Are you really jazzed up by this? And are you feeling like the NBA you know, created this great solution that's going to be in your own benefit? Or are you still just like, you know, it's a good idea, you know, cute story, but this is not the fundamentals of uh, of our relationship. How do you feel if you're a TV exec? Well, it's a good question, and I am tracking a lot of this with my sharp tech hat on. And it's funny because um, there was a report recently that Netflix is potentially interested in the in-season tournament, the hyphen, and then that report was debunked, I believe, like a week or two later. Uh, and so you get the sense that the NBA is trying to gin up interest. Like David Zaslov, who's the head of Warner Brothers Discovery, Every time they ask him about the NBA, he makes a point to emphasize, we like the NBA, but we don't need the NBA. And so it's maybe not a great sign that he feels the need to continue to repeat that refrain. Um, but if I'm like Amazon, yeah, this is, if I'm like a company like Amazon, I see a lot of meat left on the bone in terms of the way these games are being promoted and say, look, we could get pretty creative with the way we're delivering this product and it could draw eyeballs to our platform and do whatever else Amazon is trying to do with Prime Video. Uh, and so it does look fairly attractive. The question is, is it going to be like as lucrative as I think the NBA is hoping it will be? Um, that's, you know, we won't really know until next summer, but uh, but I, I think there's enough here that if I'm the NBA, I'm feeling pretty good right now uh, as I try to take this to market. And I think the the lack of competitive offers is not necessarily basketball's fault. It's just kind of a really unfortunate time to be trying to triple your rights fees right now. Right. So just the numbers from the NBA side, up 26% on uh, ESPN and TNT up 20% um, on local TV. They're claiming highest average attendance uh, in person. They're claiming highest November ever in terms of social media video views. And they're saying league pass viewership up 25%. And that's all compared to similar dates on last year's November calendar, which would have just been random games, right? So Mm -hmm. um, that feels pretty steady and consistent across the different things that they track. I only bring those numbers up because before they unleashed this thing at the start of the season, the NBA executives were saying, here's how we're going to measure whether this is a success. And they listed all those same categories. And so they're, they've got to be feeling good. I mean, that's why they're blasting this press release out to everybody is because they want to brag. Um, you mentioned Amazon Prime, though. And so congratulations to the NBA. But the real win on Amazon Prime lately, bro, was the Barry Sanders documentary. Have you seen that thing? No, I haven't. I need to check it out. Oh, Oh, you got to check it out, man. You know, I'm a big Barry Sanders guy, obviously, you know, yeah. because uh, he's the only thing the Detroit Lions have really ever had to, uh, you know, hang their hat on. It's pretty cool. Like, he doesn't have a lot of personality. Barry Sanders never had a lot of personality, but he's right there with Jerry Rice as my football goats of all time. 
and they just explain like why did he retire early you know why did he just hand the football to the referees instead of celebrating after touchdowns yeah what made him so special at Oklahoma State why did his dad have such a huge role in his life in terms of almost being like his personal PR guy throughout his entire career always at the games always giving interviews why was his dad, you know, so distraught when Oklahoma State offered him the scholarship and he accepted it because his dad was this giant Oklahoma fan and it felt like he was being stabbed in the back. I mean, there's some good stuff in this documentary. And obviously it's one of these classic, you know, uh, documentaries where the guy's involved in the production. And so it's going to mm. be tilted a certain direction. But I can't think of anybody who deserves to have a soft focus documentary where we can all just remember how awesome it was watching him do 720s through linebackers <laughs> than Barry Sanders. So give it a look. That's a free plug for Amazon. I'm sure they oh, need it. Oh, man. No, I appreciate it. I will check that out. Uh, two more notes on the hyphen before we move to Mark Cuban. So Tuesday night, just two player observations. Number one, I don't know whether you saw any of Thunder Wolves, but... Anthony Edwards got oh. hurt in the third quarter of Thunder Wolves, and the Wolves wound up getting the win in that game. But watching Rudy Gobert move, he had psyched out basically the entire Thunder offense by the end of the game. I mean, like Chet Holmgren was seeing ghosts anytime he tried to get a shot off. Players were terrified to go near the rim in the paint, and it's just remarkable how effective he is and how mobile he is right now. I wonder whether this can hold up across the entire regular season. And obviously the same playoff questions are going to apply this year as they have in every other season of Rudy Gobert's career. But watching him right now, I'm a little bit gobsmacked at how dominant he is defensively. I think he's clearly the defensive player of the year through the first two months here. Um, and it was just eye-opening to watch him do that to the Thunder, who have so many weapons all over the floor, uh, but it didn't oh, really matter in the second half. So just wanted to note about that, that for the record. That one play where he's like flexing after contesting a Chet shot, that Chet gets the ball back. So he has to stop flexing mid-play, go back out, contest another other shot Chet misses in he starts flexing again like yeah it did kind of feel like in that game he was like Popeye having eaten his spinach you know and just operating on a different different plane that he typically would night and day from the FIBA World Cup no clue what happened at the end of that tournament he does feel he's like an emotional guy though I feel like sometimes like his heart really has to be in it you hate to go to that stereotype um, but it just the swings in terms of his engagement are just massive. And you can actually say the same thing for Cat, which is why Anthony Edwards is so important because he's always engaged, right? Like maybe he falls asleep on defense every once in a while, but he's out there trying to be a killer every single night. The Timberwolves just really needed that. And they also like, mm-hmm. you know, Conley's just kind of consistent. You know, he's not going to be this big rah-rah guy, but just you always know what you're getting from him has been very helpful too. But um, go, a lot of more highs than lows this year from Gobert. And it was the opposite last year and it was the opposite during the FIBA World Cup. So it is cool to see um, you know, sometimes it can energy, that kind of stuff can be contagious, right? It's like, you know, you're feeling good. The team's on the right direction. You're involved. Like, you know, you're feeling valued, like your coach is getting through to you in terms of, Hey, here's your role. And, you know, you're feeling like you're getting the results. You have this great moment with Draymond where, you know, yes, you get choked out on national TV, <laughs> but you somehow win the war of words. Yeah. And like people kind of took Rudy Gobert's side in that one for the first time ever. It felt like Draymond lost that entire exchange, right? So you add all those things up, a lot of positive indicators for Rudy Gobert. I think you called him the leading uh, favorite for a defensive player of the year. 
um, that'll be the thing to track, right? Because if mm-hmm. this continues, I think it's kind of his to lose. He's the, he's the early front runner. There's no question. Um, and it, it does surprise me to say that. Yes. Okay. So one other note uh, from the Tuesday night in-season tournament games, Chris Middleton is such a good avatar for who the Bucks are right now because I, a week or two back, watched Bucks Wizards and came on rhapsodizing about how great Giannis looks, the way he's moving, everything else. You watch Chris Middleton, he's just so creaky and just looks washed. And I get that he's coming back from injury, so I want to sort of give him the benefit of the doubt, give him a couple months to get into a good regular rhythm out there. Uh, but you watch him against the Heat the other night, and players are like blowing past him. I mean, it's like Jaime Jaquez on one end and Chris Middleton on the other, and Jaquez was getting the better of him on a couple possessions, and it was just like, wow, I guess age comes for all of us. And then at the very end, he's just ice cold the way he executes and so i don't really know what to believe because uh i do think it's a problem that he's ice, as, ice cold in a good sense you're saying because yeah. he, he doesn't he doesn't get like you know distracted or overwhelmed by the moment he's not taking crazy shots he's just clinical exactly clinical methodical uh good clarification i don't mean he's like bricking jumper after jumper yeah. i mean he's got ice in his veins and is just going to work and out executing a Miami Heat team that's pretty good at executing and helping the Bucks easily get that win by the end. Um, and so I just say this to, to note that I can't really make sense of who the Bucks are right now because they're so bad defensively. They let all these mediocre guys Isn't go off it? on any given night. Well, do we, so do we have to I, look past that? I mean, if you can't play, if you're going to be a veteran dominant team, right? And you're so untrustworthy defensively, and the body of work is expanding and expanding. Isn't that damning? Like, isn't but they're that... so trustworthy in the clutch that I don't mm. know how to balance those two realities. Like, I I look at Middleton down the stretch, and I'm just like, yeah, he's gonna get you a bucket every time. If you try to double Dame, you're gonna be in trouble because Middleton can go to work, and then Giannis uh, as a role guy is gonna be terrorizing teams, uh, and so. You know, maybe they're too shaky everywhere else for that to matter. They're sort of the inverse of the magic as well. It's like the top of the roster, you just feel really great about. And everyone else, it's like, I don't know. Good luck with that. Um, So I I, I just note my confusion and we'll continue to track it as the next few months unfold. And creaky Chris Middleton either gets his legs underneath him or looks more washed by the end of the regular season. I think either one is in play. You're making great points on Chris. Look, I, you know, as somebody, when I was a kid, I was taught, get your work done early, and I would always procrastinate, right? And mm. the Bucks, to me, they feel like procrastinators as opposed to somebody who is really, like, reliable. They're just, like, you know, have some divine ability in the clutch that, like, no other team has. I just, I don't buy in that. I just feel like that they just wait and wait and wait to the last possible moment. I think that will get you burned. You know, I think that, uh, you know, procrastination is not a full vice, but you're halfway there. And mm-hmm. they're going to have to show me a lot more, especially defensively, before I'm willing to buy this idea that they're just like built for the playoffs and ready to do it. Like, I, I don't know. I, that, that part feels a little bit too thin for me to buy in on. Now, this idea of Middleton aging, though, is interesting because we talk about how Giannis is going to age, right? Where 
He's going to have to become more of a defensive player. He's probably going to be a little bit more limited offensively. We've talked about Dame aging. What does it look like as a small guard? How deep into your 30s can you go and be an elite player? I think he's going to age okay because uh, everybody can score these days. And if you can score, and he's he's shown the ability he can continue to do that, he's I think he's going to have more years in this modern NBA than he would have had, say, 10 years ago, where the, the lack of size and the maybe a slight uh, drop-off in quickness as you get older kind of hold you back. I'm not sure Dame's going to have that. As, I don't think the wall is going to hit him super hard. Middleton, though, is tricky because never an athlete, right? Always a technique guy. Always that mid-range assassin type guy had a lot of two-way value in his yeah, prime physical defense years. Defense is a huge part of the story with him. That's that's the issue, right? So if that just recedes, and he's down to being the third option on offense, his value relative to what you're paying him is significantly lower. He's now not like a two-way all-star level wing. He is a number three scorer and defensive liability. Those two things get paid. You know, one of those things is worth forty million, and one of those things is worth. 18 million, right? Mm-hmm. And so that could be an issue for Milwaukee depending on how he ages. I will always, out of sheer loyalty, give him every possible benefit of the doubt. But how many doubts have we given this guy lately? I, mean, I feel like we've been giving him benefits of the doubt since 21, right? And it's almost 24. That makes me a little bit nervous. Um, I, I won't yeah. write him off. I will, you know, I've, I went through years of wars on his behalf when it was not popular <laughs> to defend him. So I'm not going to forsake him. I'm not going to leave him out there on the battlefield. Um, but I haven't liked what I've seen the last three years. Yeah, Flat well, and he came up huge in the finals against the Suns. He came up huge in the Eastern Conference finals against the Hawks. Like He has delivered time and time again in the clutch for the Bucks. So I wouldn't feel bad about Chris Middleton. But again, in person, you watch him. Just even the way he's like walking out there, you're like... Man, okay, how old is he again? And and he's not that old, um, but it just oh. age hits people differently. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see how his season evolves from here. Uh, do you have any final well, thoughts, or should we move to Cuban? No, I mean clear signs of decline. Obviously, his minutes are way down because they've been managing it this season. But you know, he shot in that uh, twenty-one championship season. He shot 41% on threes, pretty high volume. He's down to 32% this year, 31% last year, obviously limited minutes and limited games last year. So he went from being an elite three-point shooter to a subpar, please do not shoot three-point shooter of these last couple of years. Yeah. Again, like the, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle if he can ever get back healthy. But what is the evidence that we're, we have that he's going to be able to get back healthy play 32 minutes a night for 65 games this year. I don't think we have real reason to buy into that. So that part makes me nervous for sure, especially in the playoffs. You know, you can only manage this thing so much. It's not a huge deal in November, but like we need to see peak Chris Middleton at some point. Otherwise, I feel like that's the deal breaker. You called him kind of the X factor, the pivot player for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you got to play a lot of minutes across two months in May and June. Can his body hold up to that? At least questionable, if not doubtful. Yes, uh, questionable for sure. And I think doubtful. You have a good argument based on the last couple of years. Uh, ben in Nairobi says, I'm a begrudging Mavericks fan. I grew up in Dallas, lucky to live through the Dirk experience. Just as a side note, I am incredibly jealous of anyone who grew up a Mavs fan in Dallas and got to live through the Dirk experience. I think that's like top five fan experiences of the last 25 years, maybe across any sport. Um, In any event, Ben says, I still care about the team. 
But I find these latter-day Mavs teams unpleasant to watch and hard to root for. And above all, I think Mark Cuban is a bad owner. I'm pretty sure that guy did a cost-benefit a while back and realized that he could get the most out of ownership by using the team to bolster his personal brand and that this only requires staying newsworthy, not actually winning at high levels. Yes, he won a championship, but then he came to the conclusion that it wasn't worth trying to do it again. So I was delighted at the headlines that he would be selling the team and then appalled in bold and underline when I saw that he would remain minority owner and retain the role of basketball decision maker. Doesn't this just mean that he can continue making bad decisions that benefit his brand but not the team, but now he bears less of the financial risk in doing so? What am I missing here? Why is this even allowed? So Ben, I don't have that many takes on the Cuban situation, except that it is pretty bizarre. Uh, and I think a lot of Mavs fans went through a similar cycle of emotions where they saw the initial headline and were like, huh, okay, I'm ready to move on. And then it's like, oh, actually, we're not moving on. <laughs> um, and, and Cuban is going to like extend his uh, empire in Dallas with this casino situation and a new building, perhaps. I'm not exactly sure what's in play down there. Do you have any read on it? Well, we randomly got a tip that he was selling like two weeks ago. And so I went through the same cycle because when I first got the tip, I was like, there's no way he's selling. It's Mark Cuban. He's never going to sell the team. It's his identity. Then, yeah. Yeah. And so we're like, how do you confirm misinformation? Like obviously only a very small few people know. So as we're kind of going through that process, eventually it comes out that the, you know, the Adelson family, the, the Las Vegas casino magnets are the ones who are going to be buying this majority stake in the Mavericks, but allowing Cuban to still run basketball operations and so, you know, I went through the exact same cycle you're describing the fans did. It's like, oh, yeah, I guess this makes sense from Mark Cuban's side. But is this actually in the best interest of the fans? Maybe not. It does seem to be a pretty good win-win deal for Cuban and for the Adelsons. I mean, you look at Cuban's side, for all the negativity that uh, Ben and Nairobi put out there and totally granted. I mean, they had a lot of lost years after the championship year. It felt like Cuban believed his own stuff too much and, you know, not bringing back Tyson Chandler. It just kind of felt like he had the golden touch after that year and it pretty much cost them a decade until they got Lucas. So he has to own that. I also like this idea of him painting Cuban as like the Deion Sanders of NBA owners where it's like, mm -hmm. is it clicks or wins, Andrew? That famous quote by the uh, the Oregon coach. And it's like, well, sounds like it's just clicks for Mark Cuban. Um, but I really don't think anyone can question his commitment to the basketball side of that team, right? Like there's been scandal after scandal on the business side. It doesn't seem like he ran a very tight ship there. He's tried to clean house over these last couple of years. But this guy shows up to his team's games. He's often out road games, sitting courtside. He's always screaming and yelling and, you know, trying to be super involved so much so he gets fined for uh, tanking last year because he's got this grandmaster plan to kind of keep their draft pick, right? Like he's always been hands on from a basketball side. And I just couldn't see him walking away from that at 65 because as Mark Stein wrote, like this is his identity, Mavericks owner. To me, what this is, and I, I think you have to give him credit. They say buy low, sell high, right? He bought low on the Mavericks in 2000 or 2001 from Ross Perot Jr., who had not made the playoffs for a full decade prior to Mark Cuban buying it and it had just been a completely wasted franchise, right? He buys it for like $280 million or something like that. 
And I think Cuban looked at this as the right time to cash out, sort of like that Bucks owner uh, looked at it as the right time to cash out. And arguably Michael Jordan looking at the, the Hornets as the right time to cash out as well. You know, Cuban gave an interview recently where he was expressing expressing concern about not this current TV rights negotiation, but the next one. And yep. essentially saying, like, things aren't always guaranteed to go up forever, almost implying that the NBA could be in a little bit of a financial bubble. And by selling half the team, he's guaranteed himself billions of dollars forever, you know, and that just felt like a smart timing move by him. Um, he doesn't have to squeeze every last dollar out of this deal. And so he bought the Mavericks low. He sold the Mavericks high and he gets to continue doing what he likes to do. So I think he winds up being a pretty big winner here. The Adelsons, they are trying to basically get sports gambling legalized in Texas. It's amazing how much Texas cares about sports. And, you know, how Republican dominated the state has been that they don't have legalized sports gambling. It's, you know, kind of crazy. It feels like that's like the biggest market kind of untapped right now that people are looking at. And so, you know, that family, their their interests are pretty clear here. And, you know, it'll probably be a multi-year plan, but they can afford to be patient. So I get why they're doing it. I get why Cuban's doing it. And I understand where Ben's coming from, where... Is this in the best interest of the fan? Is Cuban going to be able to have full control over good basketball decisions if he's not serving as the governor of the team, if he's not actually that final decision maker? Is there going to be some tension between the business side and the basketball side at some point? That's natural within an organization. Um, it's easier to get through that when it's you're the same person on both sides, but now he's not going to be. So I, I do think it puts the actual team into a little bit of question, but I get the business side and... I was going to ask you, you know, Cuban in this interview with uh, all the smoke and the guys on Showtime, he was like delicately dancing around the financial aspects for the league. And he's like, oh, I'm not worried about this current uh, media rights negotiation. I'm worried about the one that comes after that, because at that point, like most likely major television will just be gone. Right. When you're talking about seven, eight years down the road. So you're going to have to have all your revenue, most likely from streaming options or a much a, a much higher percentage of your Revenue is going to be coming from that. And I wonder if that was spin and he's actually worried about these current negotiations and he's thinking, let me just take my money and run now so I don't have to worry about it. So there can be somebody else's problem. But mm -hmm. obviously, he's not going to admit that because that would, you know, reduce the NBA's bargaining power in these current negotiations. So it felt like maybe he was letting people in on his anxieties in a roundabout <laughs> way, if that makes sense or not. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, think? it's it's interesting. I think you go back through Cuban's history. He was the one who like 10 to 12 years ago came out and said, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered, talking about the NFL and predicting like the imminent demise of the NFL. And I think you could have a similar conversation about what the NBA product has well, looked like over the last five or six years in terms of who's a hog. Um, and, yeah, he took an L on that one too, right? He came back out and said, I was completely wrong. So, Oh, I didn't, <laughs> like, I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hard uh, to be I, more I, wrong I, than Cuban was yeah. with that prediction. Uh, right. I know. But, all, all, the, uh, all the NFL owners are just like, oink, 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 oink. Life's pretty good in our trough over here. Um, so, yes, I, I think with Cuban... Uh, to put again my sharp tech hat on, 
there's a chance that he is selling at the top of the market here and just being uh, smart in much the same way that he was smart or lucky with the broadcast.com situation like 25 years ago. Um, but also, he, the Mavs were valued lower than the Suns were. And I think some of what's happening here, he's retaining a lot of ownership shares in the Mavs and is selling at an artificially low valuation point, which I think is part of his plan to retain control. It's like part of the agreement there. Um, And so the reduced price reflects the fact that he still gets to be ahead of basketball, right? He's saying, I'm going to give you back whatever 10 or 20% on the total price so that I can be the guy. And if you're the stands and you have no interest in a basketball team because you're a casino company and this is just sort of your vehicle for making billions, you know, by legalizing sports gambling in Texas, then what do you care about the Kyrie Irving trade or, you know, drafting Derek Lively? Like, I can understand why they wouldn't care so much. And Miriam Adelson, who's like the head of the family, is in her 80s, right? So she's not trying to hop in and be this, uh, you know, this hands-on owner. You know, she doesn't have dreams of being genie bus here this is a different situation right i would just love to know what like the contractual language looks like um it's the most boring topic in the world for a basketball podcast but i'm just genuinely curious like how he's securing his right to continue oh. to run the so you team. think he's getting pushed out is what you're thinking well, you think they're no, gonna i mean you can be a charge day, mark and then the <laughs> elbows come through right is that what you're saying the owner is the owner you put up multiple billions of dollars um it's hard to retain control if you're not the person who's putting up multiple billions of dollars but i'm sure cuban will be just fine i understand the mavs fans who are like yeah uh not only has the business side been a bit of a mess and there have been these scandals over the last 10 or 15 years but at the same time like the basketball operations under cuban has been quite a mess like there was a lot of weird donnie nelson decision making there was the haralabob fiasco you look at the mavs roster we were just gawking at the mavs roster earlier this week and how disjointed it is and how it's all sort of smoke and mirrors um so my sympathies to any mavs fan who briefly got excited about a new era and then had to resign themselves to another like 10 to 15 years of cuban uh and who knows how many more years of Luca and Kyrie down there? But well, um, that's that was I was going to ask you next. How much of this parallels the Bucks ownership situation, where he's selling out before a potential Giannis free agency departure, which doesn't happen because Giannis winds up selling, uh, you know, signing the long term contract extension. How much less valuable are the Mavericks without Luca, or with Luca involved in rumors of he wants to leave? Is part of selling high on the Mavericks now not just the TV rights? But the idea that whoever is buying it is buying a top five or six star in the NBA and, mm. you know, an identity, right? Whereas if if Luca's wrapped up in, oh, he wants to leave Dallas, say, one year from now, um, is that team just less valuable to the market? I mean, it seems like it should be. We've seen the, the massive impact these individual stars can have on franchise values, most obviously like with LeBron and Cleveland and Miami. But um, I wonder if... You know, is Cuban getting nervous about Luca? Is that part of this too? It's like, eh, let's let's not get into a situation where I'm trying to sell without leverage. I've got, you know, we're ten at six or whatever, ten at seven. We're doing <laughs> yeah, great. Sell now. Luca seems happy. He's healthy. Like, let's, you know, he's in shape. Let's sell right now while everything's looking great. You know, it's entirely possible. I think that a lot of different theories are in play for the time being, and it just is going to be interesting to to watch this play out. It certainly seems like Cuban doesn't have. Any 
any plans to like extricate himself from either the franchise or the the Dallas area more generally. Like this is part of a an ambitious plan to develop like a giant complex with stadiums and casinos and resorts. Yeah, and everything it sounds else. horrible so, too. Doesn't it sound terrible? It does like, sound pretty rough. <laughs> um, would you and Alice ever do like a 10-year wedding anniversary trip to the future home of the Dallas Mavericks slash casino uh. slash resort <laughs> in North Texas? Are you guys circling that one? You know, I know you had so much fun in New Orleans when you guys went down there. Would, yeah. would this take it up even another notch? Um, bottom three trips we have taken together. New Orleans <laughs> oh, was one. Uh, we did about 36 hours in Las Vegas that Alice still hasn't really forgiven me for. Las Vegas is, I think, probably her least favorite place on earth. But honestly, what taste. Cuban is trying to develop in Texas could beat out Las Vegas for least favorite place on earth. So maybe we'll have to check it out in four or five years, whenever this finally gets off the uh-huh. ground down there. Um, that that could be her debut on the show is we're going to get a breakdown <laughs> yeah. of the of the new Dallas Mavericks gaming complex with Alice, you know? Oh, that'd be great. Yes. Hey, maybe there's a nice child room for Charlie. He can jump in some ball pits while you guys uh, spend his college inheritance in the slot machines watching. Lose uh, him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, yeah. it's great. Um, all, all just brainstorming for cubes down there. Final note here from Hans. He says, do the careers of Amen and Osar Thompson represent the most scientific slash data-driven approach we have to understand the relative strengths of the Western and Eastern conferences. For a long time, I've seen these debates as random cherry-picking of date ranges, but we now have two players who are genetically identical and are both on young, rebuilding teams filled with other questionable young players. What do you think? Ben, I have a take here, but what do you think generally as we as we confront this scientific experiment? I thought this was proven. I mean, I've and who has made the case more strongly than me over the last 10 years? I feel like it's indisputable evidence even without these guys. But if you do want to look at their rookie years, you have Asar Thompson getting all defense buzz, mm. starting for the Pistons, putting up big numbers. Everybody's so excited. And you've got his brother in the Western Conference, can't even get off the bench, not even really a part of the major rotation, uh, not necessarily a priority. Uh, he's had some injury issues, unfortunately, so we can't blame it all on um, you know conference imbalance. But I think we could agree if Ahmed Thompson was in Detroit, um, he might be their best player, <laughs> and certainly <laughs> uh, he would be. You know, he'd be getting a lot more minutes than he's getting in Houston. So I think it reinforces the Paul Millsap currency ex- exchange. There's no question about it. There you go. It's it's just a public service announcement to all the goats out there. We can monitor this as a community and just process the data as it comes in. My the main reason I read this is because I messaged you on Instagram last night. You were standing apparently in like the middle of a cove, like in the middle of the ocean. You had the iPhone out. It must have been cinematic mode because I felt like I was in the middle of like a music video as you're just panning the situation Mm. out there. And I'm sitting here on like a frigid night in Washington, D.C., pretty depressed. I walk Charles every single night and the walks are now dark and cold. And so... I look at you out there in the ocean, out there in the cove, and I'm like, mm, dude, mm, please mm. take it down a notch. Post a trigger warning before you post a video like this. And you just hit me with Western Conference. That's yep. your response. And 
I want to say thank you to Mother Nature for delivering me a great crisp fall day on Thursday afternoon in Washington, D.C. to help me rebound from that massive L that I took in the Instagram DMs. I don't know whether you want to share any detail on the Cove situation out there, but I continue to be jealous, and um, I was also impressed by the cinematic mode on the iPhone as well. Yeah, you got to get the upgrade, man. You got to get that new one. I can do all sorts of cool stuff. I thought about, you know, having a caption on that video was like almost December with the wide eyes and maybe like a little <laughs> temperature gauge. It actually wasn't that warm and it was beautiful. It was like 60, but it wasn't, you know, like 72 and sunny. So it wasn't the full Southern California exceptionalism braggadocio that, you know, sometimes is possible down here. But um, I don't want to give too much. I mean, it's kind of a secret little spot that I found. It was my first mm. time exploring that angle of the Palos Verdes Peninsula, kind of right in my backyard now. Um, I absolutely love it up here. One of the crazy things, though, that to get there, I actually had to walk through an archery range. If you want to keep your head on a swivel, <laughs> walk through an archery range. Now, granted, it was completely empty. There was no one else there, but they had all these targets that were like fake animals that had been shot by arrows by this archery club. So picture a deer, you know, mm. like slumped over, not paper mache. It was probably uh, wooden or something like that. <laughs> and it had all these like arrow holes in its body and in its head. It had been like mutilated by this archery club as they're practicing it's almost, uh, you know, frankly, it was set up almost like a mini golf, uh, you know, deal. So there right. was like different stands, you know, kind of like stand one, then stand two, sort of like the holes one, two, and three. So that was a little spooky. I guess, you know, in a certain degree, I was happy to get out of there alive and without any injuries uh, because it was a little bit strange. But I didn't know that place existed. Have no clue how they secured prime, like, coastal beachside real estate for an archery club that's not being used. I mean, these guys must have untold <laughs> millions of dollars. It's just crazy, but um, nice little spot, good little afternoon walk. Uh, it has been dark for my afternoon walks uh, recently, Andrew, and on that point, guess what I have showing up? You want to talk about Wash? You want to talk about Chris Middleton and all these other older players? I've got myself a walking pad, like a treadmill for my office oh, showing wow. up. So I don't even have to go outside. So I could just stay inside on these dark and cooler nights and watch my league pass as I walk. Maybe I can get get like a walking desk, maybe. Maybe we could do walking podcasts. What do you think? Where I'm just mm. kind of like getting my steps in. Hopefully I'm not pounding too loudly to like screw up the microphone, ambient noise. And I could burn calories while taping, you know, multitasking with true efficiency. What do you think? Wow. Um well, this is difficult because I was really enjoying imagining you like running serpentine style through the archery range to get to this magical cove out there. And that was the image I was going to take with me mm. after we finished recording here. But now I'm imagining you and I like in our 70s continuing yeah. to podcast on dueling like walking treadmills because neither one of us can sit for an hour and a half anymore. <laughs> and we're just geriatric podcasting in like the 2050s. Um, but hey, I, I'm game if the goats are game at that point. I guess we'll just sort of see how it plays out over the next several decades. Uh, but in any event, thank you for the color. Love learning about the archery range out there. Probably some sort of money laundering operation, but oh, more yeah. power to them. Um, and on that note, well, they let's had close no office. 
That's what I couldn't figure out, Andrew. There was not like a headquarters. It was just like, hey, here's some places to shoot your arrows and pretend that you're killing animals. Like it was mm. just a strange, you know, it would be a great place, honestly, for a Halloween haunted house. Oh, man, that would kill. That would just <laughs> go over gangbusters. Maybe that's how they could make the money back to pay the rent. Who knows? All right. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver on threads at Ben.Golliver. And on X at Ben Golliver. Andrew's on social media, but don't even worry about it. Do follow the official at Goat NBA Pod X account for all the latest and greatest. Congratulations to the Orlando Magic fans. We actually talked about you. If you want to help steer the conversation, email us greatestofalltalk at gmail.com, greatestofalltalk at gmail.com. Andrew's got three separate podcasts. That's Sharp Tech for Tech, Sharp China for China. This show for basketball all in one place for a low price with the Stratechery Plus bundle. Be sure to sign up. Lots and lots of people are doing it. Uh, He's got you covered at every single base. All right, Andrew, until next week when we're probably going to have to preview a trip to Las Vegas, probably get some Mm. live reports from in between the slot machines at Alice's second least favorite city. I will talk to you. (laughs) Take it easy, man.